Hello and welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're talking bad companions, scratching the surface of queer history during the Second World War with Michael Fryer. Michael is the outreach officer with Northern Ireland War Memorial, a Second World War museum based in Belfast, and a volunteer with the LGBT History Club that meets monthly in partnership with the Linen Hall Library. Hello, Michael. Uh, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Uh, when this episode goes out, it will be Pride Week in Belfast, and that seemed like a good opportunity to delve into an often overlooked part of history, uh, particularly when it comes to both Northern Ireland and the Second World War. And we thought there's no better person for the job. Uh, can you tell us um, a little bit about yourself and how you got into exploring this area of our history? Yeah, thanks, Scott, for the welcome. Uh, so my name is Michael Fryer. I am the outreach officer for the Northern Ireland War Memorial, which is a Second World War museum based in the Cathedral Quarter in Belfast. So we tell the story of really the home front in Northern Ireland during the Second World War. So topics including the Belfast Blitz, uh, the American presence, um, the contribution of women, the role of local industries, evacuees, the Ulster Home Guard, uh, anything to do with what was happening um, here in Northern Ireland during those six years of, of World War II. Um, as the outreach officer, I do a lot of talks and um, workshops, particularly with community groups, with older people as well, reminiscence workshops, um, working with people living with dementia as well, and some intergenerational work too, so I enjoy the variety of that. Uh, back in February um, 2022, um, we decided to mark LGBT History Month, which is really um, a month every year, it does tend to be every February, where um, the spotlight is really shone on aspects of LGBT history. And I guess many museums and heritage sites have been particularly interested in exploring this aspect of, of history and heritage over, um, over recent years. So it was something we wanted to mark for the first time. Um, I'm a, currently a volunteer with a group called the LGBT Heritage Project, um, which is looking at kind of the later LGBT history of Northern Ireland. And I do already have an interest in this aspect of our our history. So I think it kind of made sense, particularly with the support of my colleague Alan Freeburn, who was acting museum manager at the time, to do a bit of research into this topic. And uh, yeah, I was able to give a talk uh, back in February, uh, particularly looking at the what, what I called the queer history of um, the Second World War. So um, I, I have heard that talk and um, I, was, I was greatly interested in it. And I realized it was something that even throughout all the research I've done into, you know, wartime life in Northern Ireland, it was an area that I knew very little about. And uh, obviously we thought that uh, this would be a good chance to maybe dive into some of those stories. Um, but I just want to start with the, the sheer numbers of, of men and women that were conscripted or volunteering for service during the Second World War had an overall massive impact on society. Um, despite homosexuality being illegal at the time for men, uh, many of those who served had same-sex relationships. Um, how did the military deal with this at the recruiting stage? So um, I have to acknowledge that a lot of the research I've been relying on is by an historian called Emma Vickers, who wrote a book called Queen and Country, um, looking at same-sex design in the British Armed Forces during the Second World War. Uh, I think she's based in Liverpool at the minute. Um, 
But through her research, she was able to find that certainly through um, oral history interviews later in, in life with, with veterans who, who acknowledged that they were um, uh, queer and, and talked about their experiences. But what seems to have happened was when recruits ended up at the medical boards, which was kind of the first port of call before they were formally recruited into the armed forces, um, there would have been uh, an expectation that um, they would have been uh, assessed, I suppose, in terms of their physical fitness, but also potentially if they were, um, you know, gay or, or, or bi, um, that that would have been picked up. But actually, in many cases, what seems to have happened was the authorities deliberately turned a blind eye, um, particularly, I suppose, to recruits who might have tried to or might have been naturally kind of more camp would be the word we would use today. I mean, there's a quite a funny story about a, a drag queen called Terry Gardner, who was told by some of his friends, you got to really camp it up, Terry, because then that means that at the medical board, they will fail you and you won't have to serve in the armed forces. So he basically did everything he could to camp it up. I'm not quite sure the details, what he did, but he kind of played up and, uh, you know, having been a drag queen, I'm sure knew exactly what to do and was really disappointed to be just passed through and ended up becoming a cook in the Navy. I think what seems to have happened, according to Emma Vickers research, is that um, where a, a recruit quite clearly was 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 gay, for example, um, there was a feeling of uh, not wanting to let them shirk their duty. And also, I think there was a belief in the armed forces at the time that if a if a potential recruit was um, gay, then um, some perhaps the best way to kind of straighten that out, no pun intended, was to um, you know train them up and discipline them um, in the in, in the military context, and that somehow would make them into a an, a man in inverted um, quotes. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I think as well, there was such a demand for manpower at the time that there was this feeling of we can't afford to, um, you know, to to just uh, turn down lots of potential recruits based on the basis of their, their sexuality. And we have to understand as well that, of course, at the time, certainly before the Second World War, sexuality um, was not understood necessarily as an identity it was more in terms of something that you did certainly within a legal context um so i think all of those factors played into the recruitment stage um you know as i say when, whenever um recruits turned up at the medical boards for example um so you've mentioned um people's research into this and you know for, for too long now lgbtq history has been overlooked um, you have, in, in some ways through other people's research, um, uncovered many stories such as that of Terry Gardner, um, mm. but where, where do these stories initially come from? So where, where are people going for this research? It does tend to be from oral history um, records, as far as I can see. Um, what seems to have happened was, particularly I suppose from the 1970s, 1980s onwards, um, as veterans got older, um, there was more research done, particularly in academic contexts, into the into the experience of LGBT people historically, including during the Second World War. Um, it's interesting. One of the books I came across was called "Between the Acts," um, which is was looking at the experiences of gay men between 1885 when the offense of gross indecency was 
was brought in under the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1967 when the law was finally partially decriminalised in England and Wales for men. And it's really interesting because a lot of the interviews are from the 1970s, 1980s. A lot of the men um, had by that time got involved in the campaign for homosexual equality. Um, so, you know, really getting into gay rights campaigning. And many of them, of course, had been conscripted during the Second World War and talked to some extent about their, their um, experiences during the Second World War. The other thing that's interesting I suppose, uh, as a as a real source for this kind of history, are legal records, and that, I suppose that's one of the sadder aspects of this history. You know, those uh, men who were prosecuted, um, who ended up perhaps going to prison in a civilian context, um, or who ended up being disciplined, court-martialed um, in a in a in a military context. Um, so that that would be a potential source as well, and there are some references in newspaper articles to those who were prosecuted, although it has to be said that many times it seems to be that they are um, referred to in a kind of oblique way. Um, they're not necessarily referred to directly as, as homosexual offences. Um, they're kind of referred to, um, I mean, yeah, th th there just seem to be a number of cases where I think the newspapers were worried about potentially um, issues of respectability shall we say so they're kind of not referred to directly but reading between the lines I think it's pretty clear that they're referring to same-sex cases. That's interesting in terms of how newspapers referred to things um, at the time and you know we need to be careful or in fact in some cases completely avoid placing labels on people in history. Um, as, as we mentioned in the introduction there war really impacted society as a whole and there was much more opportunity and freedom of, you know, for freedom of exploration within same-sex activity, um, and that's been talked about by people like uh, naval veteran Dennis Prattley. So this this wasn't just people who would today identify as gay or bi, or you know whichever um, whichever part of the, the LGBT community they would come from. Um, how how have other stories such as that of Dennis Prattley um, come out? Um, well, again, it seems to be the case that these, you know, if, if they identified as gay or bi or LGBT veterans later in life, um, they would talk about the fact that there were quite clearly men. I mean, Dennis Prattley, for example, who you mentioned, was in the Navy. Um, and there does seem to have been, I suppose, historically, you think of, isn't it the Churchill quote, rock, rum, sodomy in the lash? You know, that's the kind of stereotype about the Navy, but there is, I suppose, an element of truth in that, because uh, you have these men in ships far away from home, far away from anyone else, um, and looking for potentially for comfort. So Dennis Prattley did talk about how in the Navy he provided comfort, basically, to, to other men, um, one of whom he was straight, um, it seems, talked about how Prattley reminded him of his girlfriend, back home. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of these men, uh, you know, Emma Vickers, for example, talks about homosex. So we can't make any assumptions about these men's sexuality or their sexual orientation. Um, but, you know, it was the next best thing in many ways to be able to find sexual fulfillment and with, with, with members of the same sex. And also, I think there was an acknowledgement, particularly in the party of the authorities, 
who I think in many cases did turn a blind eye to this kind of behavior, even though technically it was um, against uh, military regulations. But there was a feeling that it was better for these men to find sexual fulfillment with each other rather than, for instance, visiting a brothel on land um, where they could potentially contract an STI. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to to see how that happened. And actually, as well, I mean, I mentioned oral history sources. The I'm sure you're aware the, the Imperial War Museum has a great oral history collection. Um, many of many of the interviews are on are online, the recordings. And it's interesting to see how many times veterans, straight veterans talk about, um, you know, queer, the, the word you might use, um, uh, comrades, um, and how they kind of noticed that certain men or certain women in the units were quite clearly um, involved in same-sex behavior. But more often than not as well, it's interesting, they just kind of, it's just a sort of passing reference. It's not referred to in a particularly, um, you know, uh, judgmental terms. It seems to be in the kind of thing that in a lot of units or kind of in the, um, you know, in, in the heat of active combat, it just seems to have been accepted, really. It was just one of those things that happened in war. There were more important things to be worrying about at the time, probably. Yeah, um, so we had, you know, people in roles there where they saw themselves as providing uh, comfort. Mm. Uh, others saw their role in keeping up morale. Uh, we've already mentioned uh, drag artist uh, Terry Gardner. Uh, there's also, um, as I came across in your talk, a rather fun sounding uh, Royal Navy coder called Freddie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Freddie, Freddie the coder. So John Beardmore, who was a gay naval veteran, talked about this coder, Freddie, who was a chorus boy before the war. And um, the story goes that when the captain was issuing orders and Freddie was having to relay these orders to the forward guns, he used to say, open fire, dear. Uh, <laughs> just to kind of, you know, and in, in, again, in the heat of battle, just to kind of lift everybody's spirits. And he also supposedly was a very good impersonator of uh, Gracie Fields and Vera Lynn. Um, and again, supposedly the crew loved him. You know, he was a he was a real morale booster, which is exactly what you need. Um, I would imagine uh, not only in war, but particularly, you know, if you're you're out on a ship on the Atlantic or yeah, um, or wherever. Um, we we kind of touched on this, but it it wasn't just men obviously partaking in same sex activity, and it wasn't just something that happened elsewhere during the Second World War. Uh, what can you tell us about the WAF, uh, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force of Ballyhalbert and County Down? Yeah, so this is particularly um, from an interview. Again, it's on the Imperial War Museum's website, but there was a Scottish um, WAF uh, recruit called Elizabeth Reed Simpson, and she talks about um, being in Northern Ireland during the war. And she, we, we know that she was in RAF Ballyhalbert. She doesn't refer specifically to RAF Ballyhalbert in this instant, although I, I think she does say when I was in Ireland. So I'm, I am taking it that she's probably referring to being in RAF Ballyhalbert. But basically she was on night duty one night and she heard, I can't remember where exactly um, it was, but she wherever these two other women were based, she could hear this kind of racket from where they were meant to be on night duty. And she said she went to the canteen and there was another lady there and she was kind of complaining about the noise. And then this older woman sort of looked at her as if 
how, how stupid can you be? And she said, don't you realize that they're lesbians? And they, you know, they get, they manage to get transferred to the same station every time. And they're not interested in you. So don't worry about it and just ignore it. And that was it. And she just refers to this, as I say, very passingly in her, in, in her interview. And um, as far as I can see from, from what she says, it was one of those relationships that everybody just accepted. It was just one of those things. I, I think more generally in the WAF, I came across a quote from the director of um, the WAF at the time who talked about, because obviously it wasn't, it wasn't illegal in the same way as it was for men, um, although it would have been you know, potentially opening them up to disciplinary charges but um the director of the WAF at the time talked about how the schoolgirl crushes need to be watched for so there was a sense in which it was almost it was an immaturity involved rather than something particularly sinister or something particularly illegal um and I mean you know as well also in the ATS there seemed to be a number of units of the ATS where um there were a number of lesbians involved um that's again we, we we see that in the oral history interviews. Now, um, one local story, which which I don't think you covered in in the talk that you gave in February, um, it struck me as particularly unusual is that of uh, Jonathan Ferguson of Lurgan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Not too much is known about their early life, but uh, what what can you tell us? So um, I got this. Actually, it was Tom Hume, who's a. Um, LGBT historian at uh, Queen's University pointed this out to me. Um, there's a blog called the Women's Engineers History Blog, which is run by a lady called Nina Barker. And um, she came across the story of Jonathan Ferguson, who was actually born Joy Ferguson in 1915 in Lurgan, attended Lurgan College. And Joy, as she then was, um, worked for the air transport auxiliary uh, or, or enlisted into the air transport auxiliary during the second world war um, and then in 1958 changed gender so became Jonathan Ferguson was a was a civil servant at the time interestingly it was covered in uh, newspapers in England and um, Jonathan seems to have actually had the real privilege of being able to change his name and his gender on his original birth certificate in Northern Ireland, which supposedly was something that had never been heard of um, before. And I think he died in an accident in the 1970s in England. Um, but really interesting story. There's not too much in terms of transgender history when it comes to these particular stories, but that was one example of a local person, as you say, who was actually, um, it, it seems transgender certainly changed their gender. Um, and Nina, I know, having contacted her about the story, was particularly interested. If anybody has any information about um, Jonathan's early life as Joy, uh, particularly attending Lurgan College and growing up in Lurgan, um, she'd be very interested to hear more. Uh, but that it's just a really interesting kind of case study, as you say, for somebody who was actually local and, and was transgender. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting and, and certainly not something which I would have expected, um, you know, at the time, particularly in, in being able to change your, um, you know, identification papers um, yeah. and, and birth certificate and whatever. Um, we'll definitely put, um, you know, put a shout out on our social media to hopefully get some more information about that. Mm. Um, 
people who listen to this podcast or read what I do uh, with the website will, of course, know that in 1942, American troops arrived in the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland. Uh, much has been made of how the ladies swooned across the nation, but in London, the actor and writer Quentin Crisp was also quite a fan. Yeah, so Quentin Crisp, who, if anybody knows Quentin Crisp, was well known for his witticisms, uh, later moved to New York, which I think, given his his love of the Americans during the war, is no surprise, clearly enjoyed the company of Americans. But he said later on that never in the history of sex was so much offered to so many by so few. Um, and actually, interestingly, we talked about the medical boards, but Quentin Crisp seems to have been one of the very, very few um, gay men, queer men who was turned down by the medical boards. And that's because I talked about Terry Gardner trying to camp it up. I think um, Quentin Crisp was in a, was in a different league. Um, he had henna hair, um, he had plucked eyebrows. And I think um, even for the recruitment board, it was just too much. So they, they let him go and he was turned down for, for, uh, for service during the war. So he was able to spend his time in London and enjoy the company of the Americans. And uh, locally, uh, another uh, writer, Brian Moore, uh, made reference to same-sex activity in his fantastic novel, uh, The Emperor of Ice Cream. And I believe this is where you took the, um, the title for the talk that you gave in, in February, uh, Bad Companions. Yeah, so the main character, Gavin Burke, I suppose, is a kind of uh, almost a synonym for, for Brian Moore. Um, he comes across... Uh, uh, a Protestant minister and these two very camp young men um, in a in a house in Belfast and doesn't realize that they're all quite clearly gay and then afterwards as he's leaving um, his friend kind of points out to him don't you realize that those three men were actually you know queer basically and he's kind of horrified at this but also kind of really kind of attracted to this very different context from a kind of quite strict Catholic upbringing that he's, he's had. And um, as he's kind of talking to himself or thinking to himself in his inner voice, he thinks about them as bad companions. You know, that's how they'd be labeled. And that was what I took as the title for this, um, for, for the talk I gave back in February, because it is one of the very, very few references to um, same-sex activity in Northern Ireland during the Second World War. And I'm sure Brian Murr, given his experiences in Belfast during the war, it, it was probably something that was based on an experience that he himself might have had or, or a story that he might have heard about. And you, you mentioned there the, the kind of lifestyle and the more kind of touching more on, uh, on a cultured, artistic um, lifestyle. And another well-known Northern Irish personality during and after the Second World War uh, was the film director Brian Desmond Hurst. Um, he was born in East Belfast and commemorated with a blue plaque on the Strand Cinema, if anyone knows the, the cinema. And he was uh, almost certainly an out bisexual man, would you say? Yeah, he identified as bisexual, um, although I think most of the stories seem to be that he was gay. Um, he famously, or infamously, should I say, said that he was trisexual, um, his interest was in the army, the navy, and the household cavalry. Um, and there are stories, for example, from the actor Simon Callow, who wrote a piece about Brian Desmond Hurst for The Guardian some years ago, but of um, Hurst in the 1970s, 1980s, kind of holding court with, you know, these groups of 
younger followers in, in London. Um, but very, yeah, very talented film director. Obviously, this is, you know, the 80th anniversary of the Americans arriving in Northern Ireland and his letter from Ulster, that um, the, the movie he made about the Americans in, in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot to commemorate um, the first showing of that in, in Belfast. Um, but yeah, no, definitely somebody who, um, you know, was, 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 was gay, I, I think it's fair to say, and from Belfast and, and worked here during the Second World War. And while we can, you know, talk about the, this more kind of extravagant side of things and people holding court and, you know, working within a, a kind of thriving arts and literary scene, um, it is important to remember that homosexuality for men was illegal at the time. Um, in Belfast, there were known areas down by the docks and by um, the, the, the infamous Dubarries by the Albert Clock where men would cruise for sex, um, but such acts didn't always go unpunished. Yeah, that's true. Um, again, Tom Hume was very kind to point out to me that there is um, a, at least one case of a soldier and a civilian being caught um, at Queen's Quay, which is just across the River Lagan, um, not far from Dubarry's, um, in, I think it was 1941. And there were a number of cases, again, um, the original files are held in the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, so Tom was given access to those and again was very kind to give me some information about some of those cases. There was one case in November 1939 when a soldier called Robert James Jess um, and a civilian called Walter Bradshaw were both um, uh, caught. Actually, the only reason that happened was because supposedly um, Jess approached Bradshaw and asked him for a cigarette in Great Victoria, Victoria Street late one night. And that does seem to have been a kind of uh, cruising approach at the time to see if there was interest. And they went back to Bradshaw's aunt's house. Um, and then there seems to have been some kind of altercation. Um, Jess basically assaulted Bradshaw and um, Jess had left behind afterwards his gas mask and his uh his insurance card or his identity card i think it was and from there he was he was tracked to willowfield barracks and was arrested and when the case came up in 1940 again it's interesting i mentioned about the newspapers um so jess was found guilty of assault and was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment with hard labor if you look at the original um police file in the public record office which tom hume has done um What's also mentioned is that he was um, charged with indecent or he was charged with assault with intent to commit buggery. That's not mentioned in the newspaper article, which is really interesting. It's just assault. So there was clearly a sexual element to that particular crime. Uh, it's interesting there that, uh, you know, 80 years ago, newspapers were actually playing down um, the, the, the type of uh, more graphic details that they'd probably use now to, uh, yeah. to, to sell more copies. Um, another case developed out of a larceny charge, I believe, against a pair of Canadian sailors in, in Derry, Londonderry. That's right. That was in 1944 from memory, and um, it involved an American officer. Um, again, it's very difficult to tell what exactly happened, but basically, this American officer ended up with these two Canadian sailors in this hotel room in Derry and a lot of alcohol seems to have been taken and the officer asked one of the sailors to go and buy um, some alcohol from 
one of the hotel porters, which seems to have been something he could have done. And when the um, the sailor returned, he found the other sailor sitting on top of the officer. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of, um, I suppose, counter accusations in terms of what was happening afterwards. Um, it only, Again, it only seems to have come to light because um, when the American officer claimed he woke up, there was about 14 pounds in banknotes was missing from his uniform. Um, so he claimed that these American sailors or these Canadian sailors had stolen the money from him. Um, the Canadian sailor who um, had been left behind in the hotel room with the officer claimed that the officer was the one who'd kind of tried to um, take advantage of him. Um, but basically, one of the sailors got off. The officer very conveniently um, left Northern Ireland um, not long after all this happened. So it was. Um, uh, transferred uh, abroad perhaps and then the, the sailor who was left the one who had been seen sitting on top of the officer was actually charged with um, gross indecency and I think he got three months hard labour and actually that was reduced from the original um, sentence because um, of the excuse that he'd been so completely intoxicated so quite a, a sad story really this one young sailor ended up taking um you know, uh, taking the punishment and the other two got away scot-free. And while there are those sad stories, for, for many, the Second World War opened up the immense possibilities and provided this opportunity for what you might call sexual liberation. Uh, the historian Matt Holbrook uh, described the Second World War as a kind of sexual utopia uh, containing freedoms and possibilities absent both before and after. Um, how did things change in particular for the LGBTQ community after the conflict ended? Well, it's it's kind of a sad story, I guess, because um, there seems to have been something of backlash, particularly against gay men after the war. Um, and that was partly to do, I suppose, with a sense that um, regardless of sexuality, it has to be said, but because um, particularly, you know, for example, the church um, had regarded moral standards as being very lax during the war. So people like the Archbishop of Canterbury um, and other church leaders very much emphasised um, in their public statements that there needed to be a return to traditional and inverted quotes and quotation marks um, values. Um, you have to remember as well, I suppose, that um, there was a declining birth rate at the time. Uh, supposedly divorce rates were going up. Um, many men, I suppose, had, um, had left their families during the war. Some of them never returned. Um, there was a challenge to traditional gender roles in many ways during the war. And of course, we were seeing, I suppose, the, the end of the British Empire in the 1940s and 1950s. So particularly in the 1950s, I think life was very difficult for gay men. They became a kind of convenient scapegoat. Um, there was a sense of back in your box, basically. Um, so we do know, for example, that in England and Wales, um, prosecutions against gay men did increase quite dramatically. Um, the Home Secretary at the time, Sir David Maxwell Fife, um, was on record in the House of Commons, particularly, you know, um, making some very uh, angry statements, uh, harsh statements about uh, gay men. Um, there was the famous Montague case, Lord Montague Bewley, who was imprisoned in 1954, I think it was, um, 
and with two other men who he'd been involved with. Um, that was a very famous case of uh, three men being in prison for, for same-sex activity. Um, so I think there was a sense in which the, the people wanted to put the war behind them um, and wanted to, to turn to, to wanted to return to traditional family values. It's interesting as well, I didn't mention this in my talk, but I find in some of the research I was doing in the newspapers, there was actually a, a sex scandal in Lurgan of all places. I mentioned Lurgan in connection with Jonathan Ferguson, but in the late 1950s, 1957 or 58, I think it was, there were a number of men ended up in court in Belfast from Lurgan who had been caught um, taking part in same-sex activity. And a number of those men uh, you know, ended up, well, some did end up in, in prison or uh, ended up um, with some form of punishment. But interestingly, a number of them were veterans, married men, um, but Second World War veterans as well. So that was one local example of how life became much more difficult in some ways in the um, in the 1950s for, for, for gay men. Uh, in the past, I have done a little bit of research into the life of Frank Mundy Coombs, uh, who's an artist who served on HMS Caroline in Belfast during the war and was killed during the Belfast Blitz, um, as well as on the really tragic story of Hugh Blackwood Price from Lisbon in County Down. Uh, he served in the Royal Canadian Service Corps uh, before being well, really horrifically uh, brutally murdered by a homophobic Canadian serial killer known as the Slasher. Looking into those stories for me, I found that information about them or, or even just uncovering those stories was not an easy thing to do, uh, given the illegality of things at the time and the, the kind of the way newspapers would phrase things. Um, if, if people do want to go on to find out more about this particular part of history, where is a good place that you would recommend starting your research? I definitely think Emma Vickers' book, Queen and Country, is the best overall account of life for LGBT people, or certainly LGB people, um, in uh, the armed forces during the Second World War. Um, I think that's definitely the best single account. Uh, and even to look at the lives of people like Dudley Kiev. Dudley Kiev was a Second World War veteran served in the Far East, just about survived imprisonment by the Japanese and later went on to campaign for, for gay rights alongside um, the well-known campaigner Peter Tatchell. So a lot more of those stories are being told now. Um, and to look at some of the oral history accounts, I, I mentioned the Imperial War Museum's oral history collection. Um, there's definitely some, you know, references to same-sex activity and in those accounts um but definitely yeah i would i would recommend also um the book uh fighting pride um i've forgotten the name of the author but that's an account of uh gay men's service in the first world war and the second world war in the armed forces um if anybody wants to see me some of the sources that i use for my talk if you go to my blog post on the Northern Ireland War Memorials website, you'll find a list of sources at the bottom of the blog post, which is some really good books, including Emma Vickers book and Matt Holbrook's book, which we've mentioned, um, which are a really good starting place to find out about some of these, these accounts. And I will put up uh, links to your blog post and, and links to some of those books in the show notes for this episode. Um, Michael, 
thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It's been a really fascinating look at an all too often overlooked part of wartime life. Um, but just before we go, would you like to give people a quick reminder of the work you do with uh, Northern Ireland War Memorial and how might they get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, I'm always happy to do talks and visits. As the outreach officer, I, as I mentioned, I do a lot of work with community groups, with older people, but with any kind of group, actually. Uh, my job really is to connect uh, the wider community with the work that we do in the Northern Ireland War Memorial. If anybody ever wants to visit the museum as well, we're based in Talbot Street, besides St. Anne's Cathedral in Belfast. We're open Monday to Friday from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock, and um, we're open Saturdays 12 o'clock to 4 o'clock as well, although we'll be closed for the months of July and August just to give um, staff uh, a bit of a break. Um, we're free to visit as well. Um, so what more can you ask for? And yeah, um, if anybody wants to particularly get in touch with me, my email address is outreach at niwarmemorial.org or I'm on uh, Twitter as M underscore Friar. Uh, so be happy to talk to anybody who uh, wants to, to make contact. Michael, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting back in the museum sometime soon and uh, get to get to chat to you again then. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favourite shows. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers, break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act, and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast? Thank you for joining myself and Michael Fryer, and I look forward to your company again next time for another wee bit of war.